We hope everybody enjoyed episode 66 with former Welsh international and now Welsh youth team coach Matthew Jones. Now, here's a snippet of what to expect today. You also need to understand care, and I, I think people misconceive this and sometimes get this wrong. They, they often think uh, care is about making things easier for people, um, giving people what they want. Whereas when I went and spent some time reading care philosophy, one of the key philosophers that I was reading kept emphasizing that it's about needs, it's not about wants. Um, and sometimes people might need to be challenged, for instance. Sometimes people might need a tough uh, session at lactate threshold, you know. Sometimes people might need to do a long distance run. They might not want to do it, but they might need to do it. Um, so it's not necessarily about meeting people's wants, or it's not necessarily about serving. So it's not that we are serving and we are servile to athletes. It's about working with athletes to meet those needs. Um, and if it's a true relationship, the coach has needs as well, and the athlete has to contribute. So it's not just about the athlete coming and saying, I want you do. It's also, well, hang on a minute. What are you doing to meet your needs? What are you bringing to this relationship? If we both agree that you need this tough training session at lactate threshold, and we both agree that that's what you need, well, okay, how are you going to commit to that? And how are you going to contribute? And how am I going to contribute? We're excited to welcome Colm Cronin onto today's episode of the Golders Podcast. Colm is a senior lecturer of sport coaching and physical education at Liverpool John Moores University. He also co-authored the book, Current Sport Coaching, and has done countless hours of research and spent lots of time with exemplars around the subject of Kerr in sport. Good afternoon, Colm. Welcome onto the Golders Podcast today. Thanks for having me, Keith. And thanks for having me, David, as well. As always, our first question that we ask every single guest is to us. Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people for the greater good. What does Goldust mean to you? Yeah, so Keith, I've been, I've been thinking about this one for a while. So listening to the podcast and uh, listening to other people's answers, really, and um I kind of thought that there's a couple of moments in coaching that might be gold dust for me. I, I think the first one is, um, is almost a form of escapism when everybody's playing a game or everybody's doing an activity and, and everybody's um, immersed into it, enjoying it, caught up in it. And you forget about the world outside of that particular game or that, you know, it might be a small side of game. It might be an activity of some sort and, and everybody's enjoying it and the emotion is in there. And, and um, yeah, you, you forget about the world. I, I think that's a, a gold dust moment that happens in coaching when, you know, we're all present and enjoying ourselves. Um, I think maybe some of that maybe reflects my time coaching children. So you escape and you get into the game and you enjoy it and you just play. Uh, so I think that's a gold dust moment. I suppose the other moment that is gold dust for me really is, um, again, when you in coaching, when you see something that you've worked uh, on with somebody and you see them execute it, um, and not just execute it, you see them use a skill or a tactic that you've worked on at the right time in the right place, um, and you have that little connection between the two of you when you almost celebrate the fact that, yes, we've cracked that, we've got that, that was the right thing to do. And those trial and errors, getting things wrong have paid off. So there's that little connection between people as well. I think they're the gold dust moments for me that come in coaching. Uh, and I don't know if you can relate to any of them, Keith, but at some point somebody needs to turn this question on you, I think. Is that a question? Oh, I don't know. What do you think of my answers? Can you relate to those moments, I suppose? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, I think when you escapism, I think it's a nice, nice term because what we do is we, we sort of just, it just evolves. It's it, it just a natural feeling of something taking place that we can't describe. Neither are we, I say consciously aware. I just think we're in a, we're in this state of flow. And when we're in that state of flow, things happen. Uh, I think what well, one of the biggest things, of course, is being acutely aware of what's taking place and then situational awareness, I believe, would be probably, uh, 
how I would describe it. We're aware of what's happening in front, but we're not consciously thinking about it. A state of all flow. Yeah, and, and flow was a word that came to my mind when I thought about the question, the gold dust question. And yeah, kind of almost a coaching flow where with an element of play and enjoyment and getting back to that love of the game that we kind of all grew up with, whatever game that is or whatever sport that is. Um, so yeah, that's very much uh, gold dust moments for me. Um, so let's enjoy them when they come, I suppose. Well, Colin, can you just share with us who you are and what you do? Um, so yeah, I'm Colin Cronin. Um, I'm a lecturer in sports coaching and PE at Liverpool John Moores. Um, I probably identify as a coach for about 20 years now. Um, basketball was my sport um, in terms of coaching and in terms of playing. Um, successful as a coach to greater and lesser extents. Um, so, you know, community coaching, Friday night coaching in schools, after school clubs, um, amateur coaching, grassroots coaching, and then also trying to help players get better to develop into more performance settings as well. Um, and then alongside coaching, I've also then, uh, as I said, I'm a lecturer, so I also teach and read about coaching. And probably in the last 10 years, really focused on researching coaching. Um, so, you know, again, listen back to the, the past episodes you've done on the podcast. You've probably had way more successful coaches than I am. Um, uh, some of them have been fantastic. Um, and I try to research what works for coaching, their experiences. I try to understand um, their lives uh, how they learn to be great coaches. And then, of course, selfishly, I try to use some of that in my own coaching. And when in my job, I try to share it with students at Liverpool John Moores, uh, in particularly the master's group uh, uh, at Liverpool John Moores. And again, they're usually practicing coaches and uh, we take this research, we share it with them. Uh, I don't know, Dave, does that help uh, give a picture? It does. It absolutely does. I think that was... Paints a picture, and I'm sure we'll we'll delve deeper now, or throughout the next forty minutes or so. Just on that, as I as I think about my answer, I suppose uh, sometimes we can have this um, divide between the academic researcher coach and the practitioner coach. But in my experience, I've not really seen that divide. I've, I've definitely not lived it because I started coaching way before I started researching coaching, and I started researching coaching to become a better coach. Uh, and pretty much all the researchers I know who research coaching have coached and that's why they've got into it. Uh, and, and I know lots of coaches as well who are fascinated by research and they want to get better and they want to learn, uh, you know. Um, so I don't really see that divide. I see that kind of um, practitioner academic connection, really. That's probably where I'm uh, where I sit. And I think actually most people end up there. They might come from one side or the other, but they're interested in both sides of that. We brought out a, a book in 2019, in actual fact, called Kerr in Coaching. Kerr, sorry, Kerr in Sport Coaching. Where did the inspiration for writing the book come from? Yeah, so that I think, um, Keith, I think that um, that comes from what I was saying. So at the time I was coaching and I was coaching basketball and, you know, um, basketball in the UK is... Um, is a developing sport. So there's not many tiers of competition. So you can uh, be, uh, there's a lot of actual mass participation in schools. Uh, but then once you start looking at clubs, there isn't so many tiers. So pretty quickly, you can get to the point where you're coaching children who are in a county team or in a regional team, or maybe playing against international youth players pretty quickly because there aren't so many tiers and that was me I was coaching kind of under 14 16 teams and we were coming up against really good teams Manchester London teams which were you know full of international players and we're thinking well how do, how did they coach them to that level and how can I coach at that level so I, I, I wanted to understand what makes a great youth coach. So and I was thinking international youth coaches, as I said, we were kind of on the outside of that world and I wanted to move into it. I wanted our players to get better and, and good enough to move into it. 
So I went and I spent a lot of time with international coaches. So this was a basketball coach, but also three athletics coaches, because I just wanted to see what they did. And um, I kind of went in thinking, right, this is going to be great. I'm going to talk to them about, you know, training programs, sets, reps, periodization, practice schedules. Um, how do we overload athletes? Um but inevitably, I ended up talking to them about athletes that they were working with. So we would have interviews in coffee shops and they would say, oh, little Johnny's, you know, struggling at uni and we're not sure where he's going to go. Or, 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 or Joe is um, Joe's misbehaving at school. So I've had a conversation with his mom or, uh, and these were really experienced coaches. So they'd all coach European level, international level. Some, some of them had coached senior international athletes. Um and some of them were coaching master athletes who had been to Olympics and, and they'd end up telling me about the lies. And it took me about two years of interviewing them to realize that uh, I couldn't work out. Why aren't they telling me the silver bullet? Why aren't they telling me the training program I need to make my athletes better? And it took me like two years to realize why did they keep telling me about people and the athletes and their stories and, and the relationships they have with them? And it took me that while to realize that that was coaching. That wasn't additional to coaching. And so sometimes we think of coaching is what happens on the on the pitch. Well, actually, coaching is a relationship. And that it took me a while to realize that. So I stumbled into this idea that what they were really doing was telling me about the athletes that they cared about, telling me the athletes that they cared for, how they cared for athletes at different times, how they met the needs of the, you know, the athlete who is retiring and is nervous about retirement. But how do they meet the needs of the athlete who has moved away from home? Um, at 18 to become a, a, you know a senior athlete how do they how do they co- how do they care for the athlete who's got eating issues and weight issues and these were the stories they were telling me and then I realized hang on a minute this is an addition to the coaching this is the coaching this is this this is the the essence of coaching or at least it's one of the key elements there are other things as well you know competition developing physically but relationships are, are are a part of the essence of coaching. And it took me that while. So I stumbled into it, Keith, rather blindly and came out and said, hang on a minute. If I'm stumbling into this, if I'm misconceiving this, if I'm misunderstanding what is coaching, maybe other people are. That's where we wrote the book. And in the book, we have four case studies of these coaches and their experiences of their relationships. You've touched on it there, Colm, in terms of, your experiences through the research but when you brought the book out what were the key messages that you were trying to convey through these the the people that obviously you you researched and and spent time around yeah so i think um i think there's a a a few key messages there david it's a really good question to prompt me to look back and think and reflect thanks for that um i suppose one of the key messages there was was to really in academic terms, reconceptualize, basically rethink what coaching was. So up until that point, I was thinking that coaching was about uh, planning and overloading and uh, enabling recovery and uh, developing the right tactic and the skills to the right tactic. And, um, And then what happened was spending time with these coaches and through the book, it made me to rethink that actually coaching is a relationship. It's about people. And I know you guys uh, have figured that out and hence the books and the the podcast, but I'm not sure everybody else has. And I certainly didn't when I wrote the book. Uh, It was only through doing that research and writing the book that I came to rethink that coaching is about relationships. And once we do that, we then have to start thinking about, well, what type of relationship? And again, up until to that point, I was thinking it's about a powerful relationship where, you know, I've got knowledge and I've got to teach them stuff. And now we started to think, actually, what I saw was it was a partnership. Four people had something to give to that partnership. And it was about a relationship between the two. And then I started to think, okay, so it's a relationship between two people. It's not about control. So what is it about? And what I came to the conclusion was it was about meeting the needs of the cared for, in this case, the athlete. Um, so it was really about rethinking what is coaching and coming to the conclusion that coaching's a relationship. Okay, well, if it's a relationship, what type of relationship do we want? And what I saw was that caring relationships focusing on the needs of the other 
really give you a good basis for then deciding what is it we need to do on the gym? What is it we need to do on the pitch? What is it we need to do on the track? Because we understand the needs and the two of us are working together to address those needs. So the book really was about rethinking coaching. I don't know, David, does that does any of that make sense to you or have I lost you along that way there? No, it does. I think it, it's a clear one that, that the, the relationships, it, it's about the relationships that you build and, and obviously then there's the element of how you do it, but you obviously touched on it, that it's, it's about curing. And I think within the book, then the book gave me some space to maybe elaborate on what that might be. So if it's about caring, then, and you, you, like your question was there, like kind of what was the key message? The key message was really that we need to, we also need to understand care. And I, I think people misconceive this and sometimes get this wrong. They, they often think uh, care is about making things easier for people um, giving people what they want. Whereas when I went and spent some time reading care philosophy, one of the key philosophers that I was reading kept emphasizing that it's about needs, it's not about wants. Um, and sometimes people might need to be challenged, for instance. Sometimes people might need a tough uh, session at lactate threshold. You know, sometimes people might need to do a long distance run. They might not want to do it, but they might need to do it. Um, so it's not necessarily about meeting people's wants or it's not necessarily about serving. So it's not that we are serving and we are servile to athletes. It's about working with athletes to meet those needs. Um, and if it's a true relationship, the coach has needs as well and the athlete has to contribute. So it's not just about the athlete coming and saying, I want you do. It's also, well, hang on a minute. What are you doing to meet your needs? What are you bringing to this relationship? If we both agree that you need this tough training session at lactate threshold and we both agree that that's what you need well okay how are you going to commit to that and how are you going to contribute and how am I going to contribute so I think it, the book also gave me a chance to really emphasize that caring isn't about being soft and fluffy and bouncy castles and ice creams uh, it can be that uh, but it can also be primarily about understanding what people's needs are and then working in a partnership to meet those needs. So being able to, you're building a, this relationship, this collaboration between coach, mentee or player or athlete, we're actually aiming to service their needs and to provide them with something that can help them uh, flourish to develop the the, the performance or uh, ultimately to develop a result for them. But during that research, Colin, was there any any differences between grassroots and professional sports environments where, where, where there are different levels of care in that specific environment? Yeah, it, it's a really good question. But before I before I go into it, Keith, I just wonder if you indulge me because because I think you summed up something really good, a bit much better than I did. And I just thought I might as well re-emphasize it here when you said that if we look at athletes' needs and if we have a relationship based on dialogue where we discuss these and needs and we understand these needs and we commit to developing the needs, well, that'll help them flourish as performers. Uh, and I think you I think you summarized that really well. And again, I think that's something that people miss. People miss the idea that care isn't just an end. So it's a nice thing to do. It's a moral thing to do. It's an ethical thing to do. But it might also be the way to having improved performance because we understand what people needs are and the two of us are working to address it and improve. Um, so yeah, there's a performance and a learning element to care as well as a moral element. And I think you touched on that right at the start of your question and I've forgotten to mention it. So I wanted to capture that nugget that you had there. Thank you. Um, well, thank you, Colin. That, that be, will that go into your next book? Yeah, but there's no royalties coming for that, Keith. Okay, you need a couple of more nuggets before you get the royalties, okay? So the second part of your question then was this idea of is care different in grassroots participation sport versus high-performance sport? Well, I would hope that it is, uh, to be honest, um, because if it's about meeting people's needs then the athletes in those environments will probably have very different needs. So it should be different. 
in, in those environments. Um, there's some principles that I think are relevant across all. So for example, in the UK, for instance, we've got a legal duty of care and that applies to you whether you're coaching in grassroots or whether you're coaching in high performance, you've got to take reasonable steps to prevent reasonable harm. So that goes across all. Those steps might be different, though, than if I'm running a, let's say I'm running a netball club on a Thursday night versus if I'm running a gymnastics club with high performers doing incredibly dangerous gymnastic moves. So how it how it looks might be different, but the principle that we take reasonable steps to reasonable care, uh, prevent reasonable harm, that probably goes across them all. The other thing is, how does the caring relationship look? And again, I think, you know, that should look different in different environments. So if we think, like, let's just say we did a study actually on um, back to netball. So this was typically women who had been out of netball for maybe 10 years, maybe they had played at university, stopped playing, started working, had children, and, and eventually came back to netball maybe 10, 15 years later. You know, there was little things that coaches did there, like meeting the women at the front door, because if you haven't played netball from 10 years and you've had children and your body's changed, stepping through that leisure center front door can be quite daunting. So that was an, a, a little thing where some, you know, one of the coaches says, I, I, I wasn't, if there's a new beginner coming down, I always meet them at the front door so I can walk alongside them as we come into the leisure center. Well, you know, on a high performance environment, you know, that probably doesn't have to happen. The athletes might have a different need. They might need a nutritional plan. They might need a sports psychologist. Um, they might be getting abuse on social media, for instance, in the high performance. So they might have a different need that the back to netball uh, player has. So it should look different. But in both cases, what it involves is it involves the coach thinking about what does my player need? What does the athlete need? And then thinking about, OK, how well do I know that need? Is that based on my experiences, based on a bit of empathy? Well, if I was that woman coming back to netball, what would I need? And then acting alongside them um, to, to meet that need. So they're the principles, I would say. So it's understanding player, uh, players' needs, acting and acting with them. So not just controlling them, saying you are coming into netball. It's, would you like me to walk in with you? So they can decide whether that's the right way to meet their need or not. Okay. So I think those three principles go across all, but the need that uh, the care that a, a grassroots underage footballer has is very different to a high performance international footballer, for instance. Or is there a difference or is there any correlation between the sport being researched and the, the quality of care in the coaching? Um. Yeah, so this is a question that crossed my mind not long ago, David, actually, um, probably about six weeks ago, we had this conversation. And the answer is we don't, we, as in I and, and the people that I research with, we haven't looked at this by sport. So I suspect there would be differences because again different sports will require and different athletes will require different needs so for instance there has been some research done in u.s college sport so this is division one um, college sport where young athletes 18 19 20 move away from home to a university and there that research has been done by leslie fisher and colleagues at the university of tennessee and, and they talk about and report coaches creating a family atmosphere you know, having Friday night team dinners. And you can imagine if you're 18 and you're away from home, you might have that need for a family type atmosphere. Um, so maybe in that environment, that's something that would be different. In other environments, again, so for example, if you were to think about sports which involve a lot of travel, skiing, for instance, or let's say Formula One, for instance, well, you know, you're spending a lot of time on planes, you're spending a lot of time, so you've got different needs. So I would suspect that care should look different in different sports, depending on the structures of that sport. But I also think it would look different within the sport as well. So how well cared for one athlete is in, let's say, cycling, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that we can then say that applies to all athletes in cycling because different cycling organizations will have their own cultures, different coaches and athletes will have their own relationships. 
And if we come back to what is care and we say it's a relationship that's meeting people's needs, well, actually, it should be very different and different because not every relationship is the same. Not everybody's needs are the same. The, the relationship of the athlete about to retire is different to the relationship of the athlete that's just starting off. So when we thought about this six weeks ago, we actually kind of came to the conclusion that I don't think we can generalize by sport. It's too specific. It's it's too relational. It's too micro than that, uh, we think. But we haven't done the research and maybe we will get there someday. In our book, uh, Colin, we, I mean, look, there's going to be more, but the three predominant traits if you like that athletes are looking for from a coach so that it actually communicates some level of connection is is that the need that the players or the athlete has got to experience a level of care so they need to know that we care for them now what that looks like in reality differs from sport to coach to the actual environment that they're, they're working in and equally the the age group the other things that the other so that's number one. Number two, and they don't come in any order. The other one is, can I trust you to help me? Uh, and that level of trust comes over a period of time. It's not something that can be gathered, and it can be lost within nanoseconds. And then the other thing which an athlete wants to look at, look for, is can you add value for me? And, and if we can do that, then then th there's something taking place. What that care looks like ultimately is an unknown. It's an experiential thing that we're on a journey, and the journey that we uh, that we're on could be uh, could be memorable because that's exactly what we're doing. We're creating memories in our athletes every single time that we go out. Now, on that, are there any are there any barometers that let coaches know that they that they are current? Yeah. Um, again, Keith, you give me your second nugget. You you know you might be um, you might be getting these royalties after all if you keep going. Because I I thought your first three points were really good there around um, that connection and that trust, uh, and then adding value as well. Um, so yeah, I, I I really like that. If I if I start with the back end of your question, but let, then let me come back to the three of them because I thought they were gold dust actually. So let me come back to them. So um, yeah, the back end of the question, kind of the how do we know we're caring? Well, you know what? From a research point of view, there is a caring climate scale. We can do surveys about you know um, how were you supported and things like that. Um, they haven't been used massively, to be honest. I, I think that's because philosophically. The idea of measuring care on a scale of one to five probably doesn't sit very well. I mean, if I was to, you know, to suggest to my wife, can you give me a score on a one to five? I'd be a bit worried about the answer at certain times of the day, you know. So, um, so I think, yeah, methodologically there are scales, but they're not necessarily used widely. There is also a philosophical point that if care is about meeting people's needs, well, the only person then who's in a position to say yes that's helped me, that's met my needs, is the athlete they cared for. So the answer really, I think, from a philosophical point of view and a bit more of a human point of view, is we need to talk to athletes and we need to have a dialogue where they can say, actually, I'm struggling with this and I haven't had help. Can somebody help me? Or actually, that's been really good. Meeting me at the door as I walked into the back to netball program, made things easier. And we've had athletes who have said that in that research. Um, we've had athletes who have said stuff, as I said, uh, family atmosphere, uh, you know, sending me a text. Okay, we got to think about when and where is that appropriate, you know, in which environment. So it's the athlete who determines whether something's cared for. And again, I think that's really important for, philosophically because if it's the coach who decides what is good care and whether the needs have been met, then the coach says, well, I've done this and that's the best thing for you. And the athlete feels controlled. They feel dominant. Well, I didn't ask you to, and I didn't want that. And actually I don't think you've delivered on that, but you're not listening to me. You've just decided that that's care. So without having the dialogue and without having the athlete to say, actually that's worked for me, that's helped me. That's been really good. 
then without that, you're into a controlling scenario. And we see this in other places all the time, Keith. I mean, if you go down to the doctor before they, you know, before they, you know, take your temperature, they'll ask you, are you comfortable with this? I'm going, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to take blood. Are you happy for me to take blood? They'll get informed consent and they'll ask you to check that they're meeting your needs and you say they're meeting their needs or hopefully they will. You know, there are rare exceptions in emergencies where, you know, doctors will have to do something in a life or death situation. But in general, the best, you know, the best way for us to know that we're caring for a patient at a hospital, for instance, is a nurse to come along and say, how are you? You know, in fact, I think it was on one of your podcasts just a few weeks back. One of the coaches um, recommended asking that question twice. How are you? No. How are you really? And listening to the athlete tell us whether they feel cared for or not. That's the real barometer. And it's the same with children. You know, who's going to tell us whether the child is well or not? Yes, we can observe, but let's listen to their voice. Let's listen to see what's working for them and what isn't working for them and what they want. Um, They know, they know their bodies. They know the games that work. They know the activities that work. Let's listen to them and see what they're getting out of it. Yeah, I mean, there's, we can ask them, we can ask athletes, you know, how are you? In actual fact, it's, it's a representation of how they feel or how, how they express themselves is a representation of how they feel, should I say. And it's based on the feeling because, you know, we can, Maya Angelou, a, a poet, uh, we have a, a quote again, uh, which people will tend to forget what you said over a period of time. And they'll ultimately forget what you did or what they did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel, either positive, neutral, or otherwise. And so it's generally based off feelings to get a a reasonable representation of what's coming back from the athlete. But it all is dependent upon their state of mind at at the moment you ask the question. It's not two weeks past, it's it's in the moment, because I think if you don't get it in the moment, you may be getting something slightly different if you ask them, you know, a week, a week later, because they'll figure all about it. Yeah, and we can, we can observe and we can empathise and we can think, all right, we think this person's doing this, you know, um, and we can use our experience to do that. You know, we've had similar athletes. Oh, I remember when so-and-so was like that. So we can reflect on our experiences. We can observe. We can read research and see what athletes might need. But it's really, really powerful to ask them and to get them to confirm that this is what I'm feeling and this is what I need. And okay, now let's act on that and put in a plan. And then, you know, there's a little... um, a quote attributed to Brad Stevens. David might know Brad Stevens is a, a basketball coach. Uh, I've not worked with him and normally I don't like naming high profile coaches, but, and it might not even be a Brad Stevens who said this, but it's often attributed to him. Um, so he's a basketball coach at the Boston Celtics and he's asked, uh, what would you do if you had a difficult player who wasn't buying into the program? And the answer is I would rebound for them. And what he means by that is he would allow that player to take some practice shots And instead of having the assistant coaches and all the support staff that a big NBA team would have do the rebounding, the coach would say, you guys go away, let me collect the ball for this player. Then you think, well, why would, why would a head coach, why would a president of basketball operations be collecting the rebounds? Well, it shows the player that I'm interested. It shows the player that I'm committed to them. And what a great chance to listen to them. Just the two of us on a court, they're shooting, I'm collecting the ball, I'm passing it back so they can carry on shooting. And you can imagine the dialogue and that environment opening up a place where they can connect. And that's reminded me of those three things you said, Keith that actually that rebounding, that'd be a chance to connect to somebody. There's no pressure, nobody else around us, just the two of us, you shoot, I'll rebound, we'll do this for 20 minutes. Uh, And in between each rebound, we'll chat and we'll look each other in the eye and we'll have a conversation. But also you can trust me because I'm not up in my office, I'm here on the court helping you get better. And also along the way, now that I understand what's happening, we can start working out how we can help you to fit into the team. 
and now I'm delivering for you. Now I'm now I'm helping you tactically, technically, physically, psychologically. So I, those three things that you said earlier, I, I wanted to come back to them because I did think they were great as well. Okay, so yeah, it's a little bit like that. The dialogue, the listening, that's the key. We can do it with observation. We can do it with research, but it's even better if we can have the dialogue and get confirmation that this is what they're thinking, feeling, and this is how we, and that then dialogue, that just gives you a basis to plan your, your next training program, your next session, right? Well, in the next session, we're going to do 10 minutes of this for you. Come earlier and we'll do 10 minutes of this. Stay later and we'll do 10 minutes of this. But it's a, it's, it's a plan based on dialogue. And, um, you know, so that dialogue is the best way to know whether the care is happening or not. We have, there, there is actually another story from, from our book where um, Richard Dobson, who's, is the assistant coach at Wickham Wanderers. Um, and obviously Wickham have been extremely successful, especially given what they've 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 had as a from a financial standpoint. And in there, he, he talked about some of his biggest influences on a particular player that he worked with who, who is actually in the first team, came through the academy and is in the first team, was when he used to take him back to the house that he was living as a youth team player. And he said it was just a very sit. They'd sit in the the player would sit in the uh, in the passenger seat in the minibus, and they'd have ten to fifteen minutes together every day, just talking. And um, Dobbo, I mean, he used the quote: "You don't clock in at eight a.m. and become a coach. You, you're always a coach." I think there's always that relationship, and just because it's not on the grass or on the court, doesn't mean that you're not coaching. And and he spoke about those moments of having 10 to 15 minutes in a in a, in a, in a car or a minibus with one of his players was some of the most powerful one, moments that he had. So, David, you've taken me right back to that, um, to the book and, and this rethinking what is coaching. Because I thought coaching was first whistle, last whistle and everything in between. Yeah, what happened on the field of play, which for me was a basketball court, but... For other people, it's a track, a pool, a, a, a pitch. And now what I came away from realizing was that coaching is, as you said, you don't just stop being a coach at the final whistle. You're a coach on the minibus. You're a coach on Sunday night when you, one of the coaches, you know, uh, told me, like, I'm a coach on a Sunday night when I'm reading training diaries. I'm reading the training and athletes, they're brilliant for training diaries. They write everything down all week. And this coach would read the training diaries on a Sunday night. And then on a Monday morning, she would plan the training informed by the diaries. And that's the other thing that I think you've just reminded me of there is that. So, again, I don't know, Richard, I don't want to speak for him, but I'm imagining the stuff that he listened to on the coach. It didn't just stay on the coach. It informed his his session plans. It informed the extra training, the you know the stay behinds, the work ons that he probably did with that player over the next few weeks, over the next few months, based on the fifteen minute conversation. And that's where I'm saying that it, it care a starting point for care is dialogue, but we also have to act on that dialogue, and that's how we improve performance. Then you know, so we now know that. Joey's struggling with their non-dominant foot or, or, or whatever it is. Well, let's change our sessions based on that dialogue that we had because we were on the coach with them every week and they opened up to us in week three and told us that, you know. Um, and then we might go back to them in week six on the bus and say, well, how's that left foot coming now? Or how's that non-dominant foot coming? What do you, whatever it is, um, to get confirmation that we have been meeting those needs. I don't know if, if, if that kind of connects the theory with what I think was in that story. Yep. No, it wasn't. And I think listen purely and explore deeply. So you, you listen with intent and, and with a purity to, to then explore deeply what's been conveyed to you. Uh, absolutely and i love that i'm gonna have that as well i've got i've got a page of notes coming here and um, the other thing that you've just reminded me of there then was 
that doesn't mean making things easier. We might have actually made things harder for that player on the bus. So we might have put in a challenge to develop their non-dominant foot. We might have put in extra training. So again, that's hopefully coming back to this idea that care isn't about making things easier and telling them everything's okay. Sometimes it might be that, but it might also be challenging them. But as you said, listen deeply so that we understand what those needs are and then we can act on it. So that again, and then you start, when you talk about listen deeply as a coach, that brings me right back to Keith's question. What was the key message of the book? The key message of the book is we need to rethink coaching. We see coaching as about giving information, whereas now we've just decided listening is possibly the basis for a great coaching relationship. How much listening work are we doing on coach education courses? We need to rethink the skills and we need to rethink why is the quiet coach a bad coach? Well, actually, now, from her, from her understanding, the quiet coach who's listening might be the better coach. So it's that rethinking what is coaching. And equally, Colin, just because we share or we're conveying some a message, it's not the message, it's how we convey that message. So the importance of intonation, volume, obviously what links prior to that is the connection piece. You know, how do we get to build this relationship, this coach-athlete, relationships uh and, and then obviously there's a there's another third piece to this and that that is how do we build that in a little triad if we've got a major stakeholder that we might have a a parent a guardian or equally that is part of this caring relationship that we have with with our athletes so what are your thoughts around that so my first thought is that that is one of the reasons why coaching is really difficult. And I know people will be listening to us and, and they're thinking, oh, well, he's making this sound really easy. We just listen to athletes, do what they need, and then everything will be great. We'll win loads of competitions and everybody will be happy. Well, actually, trust me on this. I get this wrong all the time. This is really difficult. Because there's not just one athlete. There might be 20 in our squad or we might have assistant coaches. They all have needs and they all have different perspectives. Um, we might have parents decide in a grassroots context. We might have parents decide in a high performance context. We might have a performance director. Funding might be linked to medals or to staying up or to avoiding relegation. So you have also this caring relationship that we're trying to develop in and amongst lots of other relationships. And some of them can be very micro-political. So who's got the power? Who's got the control? What does the parent want for the child versus what does the child need? So navigating these caring relationships is really difficult. So my first thought on this is, you know, we kind of have to almost say to coaches, this is a really difficult thing. And don't beat yourself up if you're struggling um, to do this. At, at best, what you're trying to do is organize some success in and amongst lots of different stakeholders. And that happens across all contexts. If it's a primary school coach and you're going in and you're doing an after school club, well, you've got the principal, the class teacher, you've got 30 kids and their parents, and you probably have the boss of your own private coaching company. So you got lots of relationships to manage. And then, I, then I'm telling you to develop caring relationships. So you're trying to do everything. So give yourself a break is the first thing. Uh, and then the second thing I think is we got to open up this dialogue uh, and we got to try to develop a caring culture if we can. Uh, I've done some work with a researcher in Switzerland, uh, another column, Colm Hickey, uh, who does some work with uh, UEFA. We put together a chapter about how we might be able to develop caring cultures in football. And, uh, and one of the things that we did there was we interviewed somebody experienced in football and they said, yeah, great. You can have a caring coach-athlete relationship, but unless the key stakeholders, which is usually the chair, the chairperson is, in, is on board, then your caring athlete relationship might be gone in six weeks when you're sacked. So they brought it home to us that actually, if we really genuinely want to rethink coaching and we want to develop performance by understanding and meeting people's needs, we need to bring these other stakeholders in and explain that because otherwise they're going to look at us and they say, why is, he, why is he quiet on the sideline? Why is the athlete 
talking to him? Why isn't he telling them what to do? Why is he listening to them? Why, you know, why isn't she shouting at them? Why is she having meetings with them all the time? What's that about? You know, so we've got to bring the stakeholders in with us if we want to move from a care caring relationship to a caring culture. Um, otherwise, that relationship is probably going to be influenced by other people in that cult in that culture. Uh, I've got an example of that if you want, Keith, but I, I should take a break and let you come in and tell me if that makes sense first. No, listen, if you get an example, carry on. Let's uh, let's bring it alive. So we did a, a study a, a few years ago. It was a, a strength and conditioning coach at a Premier League club. And, uh, you know, you can imagine the scenario. A very good uh, player was injured last few weeks of the season, worried about getting relegation. This was a, a bottom half Premier League club. And, of course, the, the player gets injured and there's an inquiry straight off. Who's to blame? Is it the SNC? Were they doing too much in the gym? Too much of the Olympics is what they called it. Or were they doing too much on the pitch? You know, were they overloading them? And, and what happened was they put in a system in place to get that athlete back, to put in a recovery medical team, SNC team, coaches. So they have a, had a meeting. But really, before that meeting, the micropolitics about the blame were in place. So, so there was a system in place. And then what was fascinating was as the player was making progress, the player wants to get back and helps the team. The SNC want them back. The coaches want them back. And effectively, they didn't quite stick to the program because they all wanted to win. They all wanted, you know, there's people's jobs at stake. It's, it's big pressure. Nobody did this trying to undermine anything, but they didn't stick to the program. The player got injured and, and back to square one. Who's to blame again? And it was a good example where actually everybody wanted to care. Everybody wanted the right thing to happen here, which was get the player back. But the micro politics of whose fault is it and who is the power to decide whose fault it is probably undermined that a little bit. Uh, and it just goes to show we need to have people understanding and, and, and communicating. And, and that's very difficult because as I said, lots of key stakeholders and it's tough for coaches to navigate. So if you're struggling in that environment, give yourself a break, but try to open up dialogue between you and the key stakeholders. It's not just you and the coach-athlete relationship. That It's not just in a vacuum. It's in a whole culture. How much does emotional intelligence play its part in, in the manner coaches express care? Yeah, so... I, I don't really know too much about emotional intelligence. I haven't researched that, to be honest, David. i got to hold my hand up there on, on that. But I think what you're kind of getting at is this, I, this idea of, uh, of being able to understand politics, understand people. And when I say politics, small politics, politics within a school staff room or a grassroots football club. Um, or a Premier League club or the SNC department or medical department. So understanding the micro politics, understanding who is power, uh, maybe understanding people's emotions and empathizing. I, I would think that's a really good basis for opening up dialogue because you can because you, you, you can take the time to think where are people coming from, what are they concerned about, what are their values and beliefs? And then from there we can open up dialogue. But I would stress that there is the need to open up dialogue because otherwise we're assuming. Whereas once we open up a dialogue and we say, um, is this something you've thought about? What are your thoughts on this? Are you, uh, are you worried about this? Now we're in a position to confirm, yes, my, the reading of, of the room here, I, I, I've got right. So I, I think that's probably my answer here, that a bit of empathy is needed. And again, if empathy is needed for coaches, is that a skill? Is that a trait we're valuing? A skill? Is that an act that we're valuing? So it's rethinking coaching and saying, actually, you've got to be able to empathize with your players. That's a good starting point. Even better if you can have the dialogue with them. So I don't want to talk about emotional intelligence because I don't know enough about the term. Um, and as a researcher, I've got to stick to what I know. Whereas I think empathy is probably something that we do know is relevant to care, but it's even more powerful if we open up dialogue and confirm that the way we think people are feeling is the way they are actually feeling. When you refer to empathy, 
when we talk about the coaching environment, occurring coaching, uh, a duty of care should be expressed from professional clubs as well. I'm assuming towards the staff. So what type of issues should clubs be mindful of? Because we're talking about athletes here. We're sort of embracing what they require. But what about, what about the coaches' needs? Yeah, Keith, this is uh, something we've just started working on. Um, we're doing a project uh, with UK Coaching. Um, we've done a big survey and now we're doing some interviews. So hopefully I'll have some definite results. But maybe if I can give you a sneak preview, some of the stuff that we're seeing is that um, quite rightly, you know, we, we know that coaches struggle with burnout, for instance. Um, we know that coaches have multiple roles. Um, whether that's high performance uh, or whether that's grassroots, but you're, you're juggling lots of stuff. You've got unsociable hours, you've got travel, you've got pressure with media. We've got micro politics, like we've just described, for instance. So we know that coaches have a lot of stressors and we know that that uh, can impact them. So we now need to think about how we can support them and, and, and just some early insights. And as I said, you know, in time, when we finish the research and publish it, we'll be able to expand a bit more. But one of the things that we've noticed is that having a network for the coach is really, really important. So we have a lot of coaches telling us, I'd love to have an assistant for instance, or I'd love to have more assistance. Uh, and when we ask them, where do you go for help? They nearly always go to another coach. And that's because the other coach or maybe a coach developer, actually a mentor can relate to what they've gone through or they at least understand the context. So as a, if I was running an organization, that would be the first thing I would be looking at is, are any of my coaches isolated on their own? Or do they have a network? And if not, can I, can I provide that network? And now budget mean I might not be able to get everybody an assistant coach, okay? But maybe I can connect them with somebody else, maybe in a different sport or maybe in a different environment or same sport, but in a different country. Can I use my networks to create a mentor, an organization uh, that somebody can go and help with? And when we've asked these coaches, what do you need help with? There's two main strands. One of them is, is that emotional support? I need somebody to listen. I need somebody to value and recognize uh, what I'm doing and to appreciate what I'm doing and to trust me to do it. So again, if I was running this organization, I'd be saying, right, who, who's going to connect with them and be their support network? And then I'd be saying, make sure you listen to them, you value them, you recognize them. Let's do that. The other thing is they're often asking for practical support. This might be at the lower levels or in the high prof professional levels, but often it's a grassroots coach that says, I'd love it if somebody could cover me for one session. So again, putting them into a network of coaches, just so I can take the wife out on her birthday or take a husband out for his birthday, or I don't want to miss the, the child's school play, but I've got nobody to cover the session on a Tuesday night. So I would be again looking at, right, are my coaches isolated? Can I connect them into a network? Is there somebody in that network listening to them? And is there somebody in that network who can help them with some practical support? Maybe it's a bit of advice on session design. Maybe it's a bit of a, a covering a session every now and then. Maybe it's a bit of advice saying, look, take one week off. I'll cover your sessions and you come back fresher. Um, and again, if I was running that organization, I'd be looking at my coach's schedule. Are they going for 52 weeks of the year? Are they going, you know, where are they getting their rest? Because they're performing in their own right. If not, I'm looking at two years down the line and we've got somebody burnt out and not performing. So that doesn't seem like a great investment. You probably have some great insights from your own experiences on that. One of my previous guests, a guy called Greg Levine, who's worked in around Formula One McLaren supercars, and he, he mentioned about, burnout and he, he came up with a wonderful quote and it's so simple and he said short sprints rather than prolonged jogs because if you go for prolonged jogs and it's just a you go for prolonged jogs you're going to get burnout so if you do continue to get this burnout you have no time to reflect there's no time to recharge so therefore the quantity actually takes over the quality of delivery. 
So short sprints rather than prolonged jogs, which was, it just smacked me right between the eyes because I'm thinking it, that is so accurate and it's so right. But yeah, the points that you're raising there, Colin, where, you know, the heads are coaching or is to just check in there, check in with the staff and just, you're in there four, five, six, seven days a week and you're doing a lot. Are you checking in and ensuring that level of care is to a standard whereby the nth user is going to benefit and the nth user is surely going to be the player? Football ultimately is going to be the game. Yeah. And you take me back to your first question what is the gold dust moment? And it's that joy, it's that, you know, it's that flow of being in the moment. And as you say, if we're doing that long jog and that plod during the seat, have we lost that joy? And when you, maybe we need somebody to check in and say, you know what, take a couple of days off, but come back remembering what it is you love about this activity and why we do it. Um, and I'd love to periodize competitions around this. So like grassroots sport, for instance, I'd love to have, non-coaching weeks so that every grassroots coach out there could go you know what in three weeks time i've got a week off where no it'll give the pitchers a chance to recover it'll give the parents a chance to recover it'll give the kids a chance for more importantly the session after all our coaches will be buzzing because they've had a week off where they can do other things i think we really need to look at schedules and periodizing and I think, again, again, this research isn't finalized, but we have instances of coaches telling us they're doing that informally themselves. They've learned the hard way. They've experienced, you know, real downtimes. And now they've learned to actually put in a week off, a day off, a couple of sessions off every now and then. And they've built a network so that somebody will cover them to do that. David, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this idea. You know, you're really well placed to talk to us about this, really. Yeah, I, I mean, I've I've been through it. Um, I think the reality is when you're in, when you are coaching, especially when you're doing it full time, is it does consume your time, and it consumes probably hours of your day. That if you worked in a normal job, it probably wouldn't do that. So you think about the normal job is it's it's generally a, a nine to five job. Whereas as a coach, especially especially in the majority of, of coaches will be working evenings as well and during the day and weekends. And I can relate to it. I've, I'm in a situation where I'm working long hours. Now, I love what I do. I absolutely love it. I have no doubt that if you did it every day of the year, so if you did it 365 days of the year and it was all the same and there was no breaks involved in there, it would be very, very challenging. Um, I've been there previously where I've had that experience and you can get, yes, burned out, so to speak. I'm quite fortunate that I have people like my dad around that I can lean on and, and ask for advice on stuff. And also that I'm, I'm, I'm working with, with people that are very understanding around that too, and understand that obviously families are important and that comes before the sport and I think there's a level of care there to to people that, that do understand that as well and, and that comes right back to where we were about rethinking what is coaching and when I naively viewed coaching as what happens on the pitch uh, and then realizing that actually you know what it's also the hotel rooms it's the bus it's the plane it's the training diaries on the Sunday night and that coach who was telling me about the training diaries on a Sunday night also said, you know, I felt really guilty because I wasn't cooking the kids dinner. I was looking at training diaries instead. So, you know, there's there's sport happens in the evenings and the weekends, you know, and it can become consuming, as, as, as you said. And then so who's checking in? Who's keeping an eye? Who's doing the observation on you as that coach? So we go back to those principles of what is it this person needs? And then have we got dialogue to confirm that? And does that dialogue then mean we can actually come up with a plan and say, you know what, David, Tuesday, two weeks time, I'm going to take you your session for half an hour or an hour, or um, I'm going to move my session to six to seven. Yours is on seven to eight. I'll stay behind and take yours too. You know, so we, we have an act based on a need and a dialogue. And I think they're the systems and culture we want to put in place. And then, um, 
again, if we think about high performance, you think, well, who's around the environment who could do some of that caring labor? You know, could, could we ask the sports psychologists to keep an eye on, on coaches? The welfare, welfare is a really good one. We have welfare officers uh, for athletes, you know, make sure you hydrate. We're away to warm weather country. Are they telling the coach to hydrate? Are they checking the coach's hydration? You know, so do we need welfare to look at the coach as well? You know, is that the medical team? So that's where I think we need to start developing a culture of care or a climate where people are looking out for each other and noticing what each other might need and are having conversations with each other and are willing to then act and support each other. And if you've not got that in your organization, then I'd be worried about, well, is that person then isolated? Are they going home after a loss and thinking it over for the next 10 hours on their own, you know, or the next three days on their own? Um, so have, have we got a, a network for them? Ideally within the organization, but if not, can we connect them other ways, maybe with a mentor, a coach, developer, a critical friend, a family member to check that they've got somebody to listen to them and check in on them uh, and support them? It'd be also remiss of me not to add this is because we're working, depending on who were the listener coaches, they might work in a high performing environment where that voice that players or an athlete gets, uh, they have to have a, a level of consistency. We get a strange voice in, it could be refreshing, but depending upon where they are and where the players and athletes are in their, in their program it might be perceived as it's going to be an influence, a negative influence towards the, the athlete's development, when in fact we're talking about a, you know, a small passage of time. So something to th throw it out there. Final question for you. Do cultural differences influence the way we perceive caring coaching? I'm a social researcher, so I'm definitely going to say yes, basically to this. I think if I give an example, um, and as, as everybody's realized probably by now, I, I'm focused on a care as a relationship, as an ethic of care, so a moral thing that can help us perform. I don't really research abuse myself too much, but I think, you know, some of the research on abuse maybe gives us an example of this. So touch, for instance, is a really good example. There are there are countries in the UK, across Europe, where it's okay for an athlete to give a coach a high five, a coach to put a literal arm around the shoulder. And there are other countries, other environments, other cultures, other sports where that's not considered acceptable. And so even there, we've got an example. There are sports, for instance, where you know, coaches will never touch an athlete. And there are other sports where coaches will touch an athlete, but they'll do it within certain parameters. There'll always be somebody there. So touch is a good example of how different organizations, sports, groups, countries, if we bring it the whole way up, will have different approaches to behaviors. So that's, that's maybe a good example of how care can look different in different cultures. You know, again, it probably should look different in different cultures. If I'm caring for an adult team, I might send them a text. If I'm caring for a team, uh, a junior team, I would probably never text uh, the athletes that I, I'm talking about within the UK, within our current culture. I wouldn't encourage that and I wouldn't do that with my team. But with an adult team, I might text uh, an adult. So it, care should look different in different cultures because those people have different needs in different cultures. And I think what's quite interesting is I spoke to a coach recently who spent some time in the States uh, and was kind of learned how to coach over there and had very strict procedures around uh, being alone with athletes and things like that. That coach has brought that, those behaviors back to the UK um, and feels that that's actually been a really good uh, practice that they've imported from one uh, culture. So I, I think, yeah, care should look different because people have different needs depending on what their environment in. 
and the people around them, this idea that there's more stakeholders than just a coach and athlete have different expectations, i.e. the expectation that you're not texting uh, a junior athlete, for instance. So people around them will have different expectations. Um, and maybe there's value in having a look at how different sports, different organizations do care for athletes and care for coaches, and maybe considering is there value in taking that into our own organization. Colin, if people want to get hold of you, how can they contact you? Um, yeah, the best way is probably to get me uh, on email. It's c.j.cronin at ljmu.ac.uk. So that's at Liverpool John Moore's. Um, I'm not sure if everybody knows this, David, but most academics have their own little page on, on their website, which usually has a lot of their articles and readings on. So if anybody goes onto the Liverpool John Moore's website and types in Cullum Cronin, they'll find a picture of me and a, a, a lot of the re, writing that I've done on care so they can learn about care and access to those articles. Um, if you just want to keep up on social media, I do have a Twitter account at Cullum Cronin. It tends to be something that I read more than contribute, but every now and then, if I have any writing on care, if I have any insights on care, presentations on care, I'll share them on there. So that's a way to kind of find out about my latest thoughts on care. Um, but as I said, try the Liverpool John Moore's website as well and have a look there. And yeah, try that for other academics as well, because there's lots of free resources for coaches. Uh, I'm not sure everybody's aware of that. How do you spell your second name, Colin? Ah, yeah, good question. In fact, my first name, Keith, is even difficult. Let's start with my first name. So it's Cullum, C-O-L-U-M for mother. And then Cronin is C-O for rover, O-N for November, I-N for November again. So it's Cullum Cronin, and the email is c.j.cronin. On, uh, on behalf of... Of my dad and I, we would like to to thank you for coming on today. It was um, obviously something that's near and dear to us in the regard of, of of caring for people and really just being a good person and doing things with the right intention. Um, and obviously, we've we wrote a book about that side of sports, and it's great to have someone on that we could speak to that's done something similar. And um, really fascinating. I, I thought that was fantastic. I'm sure our listeners will agree as well. And just remember, we threw in a few nuggets. So if if there's any anything that you need for your next book, if there's royalties, you just let us know, and we can uh, we can happily agree on that one. Uh, so yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, I have to say. The book is on the shelf behind me. So, uh, Dave, keep your book is on the shelf behind me. Um, and what I love about the book is I love the practical stories. And you've given me a couple more there now for to have a couple of uh, nice little phrases to summarize some of the theoretical stuff I've been reading. So it's been great to bring some of the theory with your practical experiences and insights together. Royalties. Um, and yeah. So, yeah, if, if there are any, I'll send you them for my yacht. Don't worry. <laughs> Thanks, Colin. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more, or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also, you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.